A few weeks ago, I had that lovely experience where you read something and immediately all you want is to give it to everyone else in your life so that they can read it too and then you can talk about it together. The bit of writing that's so good it turns you into its involuntary publicist. This time, it was an essay. It was published in the winter edition of the Australian literary journal Overland and it was by someone I already admired as a broadcaster but had never read, Bundjalung and Kalili journalist Daniel Browning. You might know Daniel as host of Away for many years on Radio National, or more recently on The Arts Show. He's a terrific interviewer and a powerhouse journalist, in particular at finding the words to explore and celebrate works of art of all different kinds. The essay that stopped me in my tracks was about his own career. It's about storytelling in this country, and importantly, it's about race. He writes, It may seem insignificant, but in that moment I had a choice. Be a journalist or be a black fella. And I'm here to tell you it wasn't the first or indeed the last time. So much has been written and discussed about the relationship between identity and storytelling, about authenticity and subjectivity. But Daniel's essay is a clear-eyed and compelling insight into the tensions and responsibilities of receiving and sharing stories. It's called Close to the Subject, and it turned out to be the title essay in a new collection of his writing. So today, I'm talking with Daniel Browning. From Schwartz Media, I'm Michael Williams, and this is Read This, the show about the books we love and the stories behind them. I started in, the, in journalism and I started in the, in the media because I had a problem and that was I felt I was too insular. I felt I was going to disappear. I was not going to do the things I needed to do in my life, whatever that was, unless I came out of myself. And in coming out of myself, I decided that the most public way to do that would be <laughs> to become a newsreader uh, or to become a journalist. Um, I had my interview with the ABC in the week of the graduate show. I was doing... Um, a Bachelor of Arts in Visual Art at um, QUT in Brisbane. And, yeah, in that graduate show, I, it dawned on me that I didn't have the skills to be a professional artist myself. In your book, you say your mum, Rose, who you describe as not given to hyperbole, once said, you are a great storyteller. You know, like, you're a storyteller clearly before you're a journalist, you're a storyteller before you went to art school. What are your earliest memories of holding a room with a story? I just finished reading The Colour Purple. I was probably about 12 or 13. And um, I was like, oh, Mum, I've read, read this book. Getting real, really excited about the telling of the story. In retelling the telling of the story, I assumed this other characteristic and then describing certain scenes in the book, that's when she said, oh, son, you're a great storyteller. So I was, I was always in the middle, wasn't I? I was always mediating between the listener or the reader and the actual storyteller. But re-communicating, that was so fascinating and, 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 and being inspired by the vision of someone else. You know, really predicted what I was going to do for the next 30 years. I was going to say, the fundamental joy of being not just a journalist but an arts journalist is embedded in that, which is that thing about trying to connect an artwork with a wider audience. When I go to a show and I look at an artwork and I see all these things, I think I've just got to communicate this because it's just so exciting what's happening here. 
And it tells us something about the world and the culture that we live in and who we are. So it was always about communicating the indefinable or the, the immaterial. But also the act of engaging with a person or with an artwork is only completed through the communication of it to others, through the articulation of it. The vision of others is, 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 is incredible. And, and what they see in their perspective is fascinating to me. I guess it's that I actually love people and I think they're interesting and, and I want to communicate what they think about the world. And some of the most interesting people are artists. You know, journalists, you know, we know people, right? Half of us, I think, know people in order to kind of confirm the worst beliefs we have about humankind. Then there's a portion of us who actually like what we find. And um, I think I do like people at a deep level and I really want to understand why they think what they do and, and, and how they live their lives because it's instructive. You know, I would say that every interview I've done with another black fella who's perhaps senior to me, who, who's someone I might look up to, I've found something to navigate this country and the world uh, as an Aboriginal person. So... I take something from every person I interview. That question about what it is to tell stories about art and the creation of art, you know, that old tedious idea about writing about music is like dancing about architecture. That thing about marshalling words to bring to life other people's artistic endeavour, is that something that kind of stresses you out, finding the right words to describe different art forms? Absolutely. It haunts me. And I think any, any arts journalist worth their salt will, will struggle with this idea of, of, of communicating in this form. It's, it appears to be almost kind of cognitively dissonant in a way because, yeah, we're trying to communicate with words what we see. And I'm talking about visual art here. Um, dance critics, I don't know how they even get out of bed in the morning. Um, <laughs> it's just like, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the struggle. But there are ways to do it. And I always think the conversations that I have with artists are much more, and what comes out about them personally, what unfolds in that um, opening, in, in that conversation, is much more interesting than, than particularly a work. It's one of the ideas behind this show is that thing that you come up against when you talk to writers about their work and they're kind of, well, the idea is there in the work. You know, the des desire is to let the work speak for itself. And so then the challenge is, okay, so what are the stories behind it? What's the context? Not to put the focus on the biographical with the artist necessarily, but what are the surrounding kind of contextual things that frame the art in a new light? Absolutely. And, and we'll pick up on, on, on current debates or, I mean, you have to keep digging. Things come out when people are talking, when the mic's alive. Things that you didn't prepare for, things that you didn't know were going to come out. And I think a lot, of, a lot of my work has been about the side note and hearing someone say something at the back of a conference or in a you know, speech, which is just a sidebar to the, to the big, what they think is a big conversation, whereas I think the sidebar is where all the stuff is happening and being able to identify what, what, what that is and, then, and going, okay, that speaks to me and I know it's going to speak to someone else. It is what I love about you as a broadcaster is that you are very good at kind of encouraging intimacy and so you can hear the people you're talking with, you can hear the moment when they shift from 
the script or the planned remarks or the here's how I'm promoting my new show or my new whatever to the, as, as you say, the sidebar, that candid moment when they catch themselves um, is lovely. And that, uh, that comes entirely from intimacy and comes from your willingness to be generous of yourself in an interview. And them too. I mean, I could, you know, emote and, 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 and be as intimate as I like uh, and make all those gestures that convince another person that you are gentle enough and, and kind enough to receive the, the, what maybe the truth that they want to impart. You know, it's that rapport that you develop. It's how you engage. I work with a, in, a, in a very kind of confined space, as you know, with other blackfellas. And in, in, in that way... I'm known to them and it's, it's safe. It's, it's kind of like there's a, there's a network um, and I don't try to trick them or lie to them or deceive them or sensationalise something that they've said. I just think, well, well the facts are so much more interesting than, than anything, anything I could make up. Part of what you're saying that I, that I think comes through really powerfully in the book and that resonates right through its pages is about that sense of responsibility to tell stories and... Uh, the way in which, you know, in your earliest days as an arts journalist, it was reporting on Indigenous art that made you think about the gaps in your own knowledge, the things you didn't know about your own culture, about your cultural practices, that telling the story was a way of understanding the gaps in your own knowledge. Absolutely. I mean, you go and you're thinking you know everything about Blackfellas and then you just, every day I was proved wrong. So I stopped believing that I knew anything. Um, I'm always surprised that, 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 that more names and, and more languages and more clan groups identifying themselves and people n- naming who they are and me going, wow, I didn't know there was a mob called that and I didn't know they were from there and I didn't know that, that they had their own language, they had their own way of talking, their own culture, their own practices that are distinct from the neighbouring mob. I never thought I was an expert, but I just thought, oh, I, I know how things are and I know how things are going. I just learned that I knew nothing. When you do something like Close to the Subject and you gather a collection of work across a period of time, you know, decades, is it a bit confronting to dig into your own past? There are things probably in the, in the book that I wouldn't, I wouldn't say now, I wouldn't agree with. Look, I try to tell the truth. And given the, the kind of mob that I work with, not telling the truth, it's a very unwise thing to do. I trade on honesty and I trade on reputation and I trade on trust. I try to be sincere all the time. I just get excited. And yeah. I, I think that sounds like insincerity. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I just try to be, you know, as engaging as I can be. I mean, my radio personality, my, my professional persona is the complete opposite of me. I'm really nothing like the, the persona I project. I'm incredibly um, at home in my own company. I'm bordering on a recluse. <laughs> I live alone um, and I have very, my, my, my neighbours are birds and, and uh, I live in, in a beautiful part of Bunjalung country up in, up in Ewingsdale on the far north coast. So yeah, my, my neighbours are birds and kind of horny koalas. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so it's just, yeah, it's really opposite to me. Coming up, we talk with Daniel about the notion of journalistic objectivity and how certain stories can be impossible to let go of. We'll be right back.
Did you know you can support the artists you love and receive a tax deduction for donations over $2 through the Australian Cultural Fund? Last year, the Australian Cultural Fund facilitated over $11 million of donations to artists across the country. You can make a real difference to the work of Australian artists this end of financial year by donating through the Australian Cultural Fund. For more information, visit australianculturalfund.org.au. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. One of the things that surprises me in conversation with Daniel Browning is how full of self-doubt he is. He bats away praise and equivocates on achievements. We talk about his brief, unsuccessful stint at art school and his realisation that not only could he not meet his own ideas around perfection, but that he had no future as an artist. But his subsequent career in broadcasting and in writing suggests something different. Writing is just like, is, is art, because you're putting things onto a surface, whether it's a, it's, it's a keyboard and you, uh, on your laptop or you're actually writing, inscribing it by hand on a piece of paper. You're creating something in space. You're creating images that you can see. So I think about the arrangement of words and I get quite obsessive about how, how, how things look and how the, the words all fit together. It goes to the heart of something that I've been trying to do for a, for a very long time, to make the world, which is, I think is inherently ugly, more beautiful. The art of rendering an ugly world beautiful, of wrangling words to try and make sense of story, make sense of beauty, make sense of human beings... You know, that is an inherently artistic endeavour. Are you not comfortable to say, I am Daniel Browning, artist? <laughs> Look, I don't know. I've been haunted by imposter syndrome from, from I think, the day I was born. Um, I think at Blackfellas we don't really accept this, the, the compartmentalisation of, of, of art and life. They're the same for me, like a... It's all part of the, the, the thing that I do. And whether you want to call that art or, or, or life, uh, I'm not really, I'm agnostic about the question. But given your um, imposter syndrome, what are the particular pressures of being an Indigenous journalist in this country when there are so few black fellas in a position to tell those stories? You know, th- that must feel like a weight of responsibility, even a burden. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely described it that way in my life, and other uh, black fellows have picked me up on that—the idea of this burden. But it is—it's if you don't feel the weight of it, that responsibility, you're not doing it properly. You're not thinking about legacy. You're not thinking about the people who who got you where you are. To to build on that. One of the things you write in the book is I wanted to confront this idea of objectivity, the golden mean of whitefella journalism, and to probe what that actually means and to challenge it. Tell me why objectivity is not a useful concept for storytelling. I think my problem with it is that, assuming that we have it, there is something about being connected to your subject, to being connected to your story, that qualifies you. You know, when this, in times of war, there's this practice that I think has become, we started to label it as, you know, embedding a journalist. And we pretend that we aren't embedded at any other time. 
this is a, a deception. Journalists are embedded. They are connected to their stories. And part of it is why you even tell that story in the first place. So, yeah, I think we're all embedded in a way. And I think we have pretended that it doesn't compromise our objectivity um, when I think it must. It has to. I really love the story in your book, Shrewdly Innocent, where you share a story about your great-grandmother, who was a devout Christian and who gave you the gift of a particular line from the Bible. She said, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Beyond humility, how important is shrewdness and innocence to you? What a good question. You could not get any deeper into my psyche than, than, in, than with that question. It sounds a bit like being two-faced, doesn't it? Well, just knowing the, the, how you're going to get the thing that you need to get in order to survive, to not be destroyed by life, and to not be so crippled by it that you can't get out of bed in the morning. Wear that mask. Do that thing that you need to do. Or just be brave. If I could say anything to my 21-year-old self, it would be those two words, be brave. And I think that's what my nan was saying to me, shrewd and innocent. And it's not about being two-faced, it's just about being aware, hyper-aware actually, and maintain that innocence too. Not just the appearance of it. I think my nan was saying, be innocent. Just be smart about the decisions you're going to make. I think being two-faced is fine if it's a reflection of being in two minds. I think of it as code switching too. Like, and code switching is an, this thing that blackfellas do all the time. Is you have to communicate with blackfellas, you have to communicate with whitefellas, you have to communicate with... In some ways, we're all code switching all the time. But we do it in multiple ways, in the same conversation with, two different, with three different people. Constant code switching. So I think that she was talking about that. Okay, so if you're going to be brave, what's the work you're going to create? What's the book you're going to write? What's the thing that you want to put into the world that's not there at the moment? Well, it actually goes back to two stories that are in the book. They're transcriptions of of features of radio documentaries I made in 2007 and 2011 about two extraordinary men, real historical figures, real real men in history, Aboriginal men, uh, one from Fraser Island and, and another from Sydney, and, and, and their journey to Europe in the 19th century, in, within 10 years of each other, and what compels them to go overseas are completely different. One's going to perform in the, what are known now in Europe as the human zoos, the ethnographic shows, and the other goes to kind of continue this lonely, almost miserable life as a political activist. He's given up on Australia, he's left in disgust and he's going to take his fight all the way to the corner of Australia House in London, the seat of imperial power, and he's going to, he's going to fight, he's going to, he's going to talk about what's happening to blackfellas here. Well, the, the lives of these two men is, has compelled me and driven me. You know, with journalists, we have the stories we can't let go of. Well, these are my two stories. I've got, I'm sure I've got more. But I'm on this, on this journey to research their lives fully. All the, all the records, all the research, all the cultural memory exists in Europe. Which, which amazes me that all these salutary black lives are only recorded in Europe. And over there, I can actually feel their presence. It's, it's incredible. I, the, the, time, the times I was being guided and directed, um, I can't, there were so many occasions when things just happened that should not have happened. And um, yeah, I just want to return to their presence, I think. 
You might only be in the research stage at the moment, but I'm interested. Does it feel different knowing you're writing it for the page, that you're writing it for prose to crafting an audio version of it? You know, how does that blank page affect the way you read their stories? So I describe it as an unconventional biography, which mixes, you know, alternate history with literary nonfiction and memoir. Because I'm connected. I'm in the story. You know, I've accepted that. I'm, I'm their champion. I need to speak for them. I need to get their message out. And they do have a message and they do have something to say. So the three of us all have something to say. Presumably you have to borrow from both of them. You have to be in there both as an activist and performer. Well, I have to just do what a blackfellow does. And that's just that connection, that empathy, which is beyond description. I feel they're, they're, they're ancestors of mine. I use capital A ancestors to describe someone who came before. They're not, they're, not, they're not my blood relations as far as I know. But that doesn't matter. They are my ancestors. The ancestors of every blackfellow alive today and they, their stories just aren't well known, and I want them to be remembered. I can't think of anyone I'd be more excited to hear telling that story. I am sure you're going to do them justice, and I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much, Daniel Browning. Thank you, Michael. Daniel Browning's book, Close to the Subject, is out now through Magabala Books. As a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. And before we go, as ever, a couple of recommendations from my reading week. You may, like me, have come across an old battered paperback copy of Robin Davidson's Tracks at some point through the years. It is a classic of Australian literature for a reason, the story of her journey across the Australian desert. Davidson's just brought out her memoir, and it's called Unfinished Woman, and it is such a wonderful piece of writing. It reminded me afresh of what an important figure she is in our literary landscape and what a wonderful writer she is. It's a treat. And I couldn't help myself seeing the new Richard Osman Thursday Murder Club book out in bookshops. I had to go and snaffle it up immediately. If you're not already addicted to this series of elderly crime fighters in an old age home, honestly, I don't know what to tell you. They are delightful. Oh, and I should say the latest instalment is called The Last Devil to Die. But if you haven't read them, start at the beginning. You can find these books and all the others we mentioned at your favourite independent bookstore. Or, if you want to listen to them as audiobooks, you can head to the Read This Reading Room on Apple Books. That's apple.co slash readthis. There's a link in our show notes. That's it for this week's show. If you enjoyed it, tell your friends, rate and review us, put it on a billboard somewhere. We want it shared as widely as possible. And don't miss next week's episode. It is the incomparable George Saunders talking about the life sentence that has shaped his career. Something about that phrase just riveted me, and I thought about it the whole lunch, and it, it really changed my, my trajectory, you know, in that period where we're going from I'd like to be a writer to I'm actually going gonna to be one. Read This is produced by Clara Ames, mixing and original compositions by Zoltan Fetcher. Thanks for listening. See you next week.